ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, no crew needed. A major overhaul of the Australian Navy includes warships that can take to the seas with no sailors on board. Also, what could be the last roll of the dice for Julian Assange as he fights extradition to the US and it's eating up the equivalent of one solar system per day. Australian scientists find the fastest growing black hole ever discovered. It is gobbling up new mass at a higher rate than any other black hole that we've seen before. It is not something I would have actually thought would have been in the universe. Thanks for your company. Australia is facing what the Defence Force describes as the most challenging and complex strategic environment since World War II. But to this point, the procurement of defence assets has been beset by cost overruns, major project delays and huge challenges in attracting military personnel. It was in this frame that the Albanese government today announced a major overhaul of the Navy that will see the surface combat fleet, that is warships that operate above water, jump from 11 vessels to 26. That includes what's being called optionally crewed naval vessels that have the capacity to operate without sailors on board. It's a huge leap for Australia's capabilities, but as Angus Randall reports, there are serious challenges ahead. It will see the Navy reach a size not seen since the Second World War, and Defence Minister Richard Miles says it could motivate young Australians to consider a life at sea. A person who is joining the Navy today has the prospect over the course of a a decade or so from now of crewing an Australian flag nuclear-powered submarine or a state-of-the-art general frigate or the most advanced anti-submarine warfare capability in the world. An overhaul of Australia's naval surface fleet announced today will see 23 new combat vessels delivered over the next few decades. The bulk of these will be general-purpose frigates built first overseas and then in Western Australia. Jennifer Parker is a naval expert at ANU's National Security College. The general purpose is uh, an interesting way to describe them and really what it's trying to explain is they will have a degree of anti-submarine warfare capability, a degree of anti-surface capability, so the ability to defend against and target surface ships, and a degree of anti-air capability. So that is the ability to uh, defend against and target uh, aircraft, missiles, and, and, of course, UAVs. Now, the exact capability we don't know because it is going to go into a competitive evaluation program over the next 12 months. So it's been narrowed to four countries who would provide that frigate, but the exact frigate hasn't been determined. The Navy will be acquiring six vessels with the potential to operate unmanned. They're called large, optionally crewed surface vehicles. Jennifer Parker says navies around the world have been dipping their toe into autonomous vessels that this would be the cutting edge. So I think it is good for Australia to be getting on board with this. And certainly if you're looking at lethality and the ability to get more missiles to sea, having something like this teamed with a Hobart class or a Hunter class, which is what was mentioned by the government today, would increase lethality. 
Of course, that technology needs to continue to develop. The international law around it needs to continue to develop, but it is a positive direction. But I would just note the first one isn't coming for the next 10 years, so there's a lot of water under the bridge between now and then. It will be years before any of these ships hit the water. Where they'll be patrolling remains unknown. That hasn't been announced, but what I would expect to see is increased presence in the South China Sea, absolutely. I would expect a number of these to be based in Western Australia with an increased presence in the Indian Ocean uh, and probably an increased presence in the Pacific as well. The government says the plan is fully funded at a cost of $54 billion over the next decade. Opposition defence spokesman Andrew Hastie says the government can't be trusted to deliver the plan on schedule. Uh, This plan from Labor is superficial and has serious flaws. There is no larger strategy. There is no urgency in this government's timeline and the money is mostly outside the forward estimates and into the next decade. In fact, we won't see a ship in the water until 2031, assuming this plan stays the timeline. South Australia was expected to build nine hunter-class frigates. That's now been reduced to six. But the good news for the state is that will be followed by an air warfare destroyer project at Adelaide's Osborne Naval Shipyard in the city's northwest. SA Premier Peter Malinowskis says uncertainty about the future of shipbuilding in the state is over. I can't possibly overstate what this means to our state's economy. We are no longer going to be sitting around wondering where is the work coming from. Our only concern is how do we generate the workforce to do the work into the future. The workforce at Osborne will need to double in the next two and a half years to keep projects on track. Flinders University will play a major role in educating those skilled workers. Professor Colin Sterling is its Vice-Chancellor. The task is, it's somewhere between momentous and gargantuan, but of course, so is the opportunity, right? We're talking now about building some of the most complex uh, machines that that will ever have been built, especially if one gets to the nuclear submarines. He says the certainty of continuous work for anyone who chooses to enter the sector will encourage long-term investment. We are short, we will be short as a state, as a nation, thousands of engineers, um, project managers, logisticians, um, ICT professionals uh, in so many discipline areas. Uh, and so what's really important now is that we that we develop and, and make available programs to students that will fill those skills gaps, that will attract students in to existing programs uh, to meet those uh, skill needs into the future. Australia's oldest currently serving warship, HMAS Anzac, is being immediately retired as part of the overhaul. Angus Randall there. Later tonight, Australian time, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange will make what could be his final legal bid to avoid extradition to the United States, where he faces up to 175 years in prison over the leaking of military secrets. The two-day hearing in the UK High Court will determine whether Assange can seek an appeal to block his transfer to the US, where it's claimed his release of a huge cache of classified documents in 2010 put lives at risk. It comes a week after the Australian government, including the Prime Minister, voted in favour of a motion in Parliament that called for the 52-year-old to be brought home. Independent MP Andrew Wilkie moved that motion and I spoke to him before he flew out to attend the hearing in the UK. 
it's potentially the last throw of the dice. So if Julian's successful, it will go on and on and on, but at least he will have another opportunity to make the case against his extradition to the United States. Um, if he's unsuccessful this week, then we face the very real prospect of Mr Assange being put on a plane to the United States potentially within hours or maybe days or weeks. It, it explains why I'm at Melbourne Airport right now about to get on a plane to Singapore through to London because I think it's very important that an Australian politician uh, at private expense, I would add, is in London to bear witness to what is shaping up to be the most important court appearance for Julian Assange in this whole uh, sorry saga. Julian Assange's wife says he's not interested in a plea deal. Can you help us understand that and, and, and does it worry you? I can understand where Julian's coming from. I mean, he spent about seven years in the Ecuadorian embassy and about five years in Belmarsh High Security Prison, all the time maintaining quite justifiably his innocence. I mean, at the end of the day, he's just a Walkley Award-winning journalist who's been um, incarcerated and faces shipment off to the US for doing his job. So I can understand why he would be possibly very reluctant to do any sort of deal, which which includes him admitting guilt to anything. I mean, he's not guilty of anything. Um, so I can understand well, if why... if he's not guilty, what, why is he so worried about extradition? Because the US is, is you know, they're, they're convinced he is guilty. Of course, you know, the, the point, David, is this has always been an intensely political issue and it's not necessarily about the um, effective and pure application of the law. I mean... Look, frankly, this is as much about the United States getting even as it is about anything else, just as for the, uh, the United Kingdom and for Australia, it's as much about the bilateral their bilateral relationships with Washington as it is about Julian Assange. I mean, this is an intensely political matter. When you talk about this, in your mind, being a political issue, has that view been informed by any conversations you've had with US officials? When I and, in fact, the other three co-chairs of the parliamentary Julian Assange group met with the US ambassador last year, Caroline Kennedy, her explanation of the situation was that the White House believes that the justice process must run its course, just as it did with Bradley and Chelsea Manning, by the way. They're saying the same has to apply to Julian Assange. So that's the official line. But I think any reasonable observer would look at this and look at the history of this and, and draw the conclusion that this has always been an intensely political matter, but it's politics that might ultimately get it resolved. I mean, it's very telling that in the House of Representatives last week, the House voted 86 to 42 in favour of a motion, my motion, that this matter has gone on long enough and it should be brought to an end. I mean, I think that was a seismic shift in the thinking in the Australian political environment that finally uh, every, well, a vast majority, including the Cabinet and the Prime Minister, stood up and made such an ambiguous statement. Let's, let's, hope those, uh, let's hope those statements are being heard in Washington. I mean, in a perfect world, I'll get off the plane in London in a little while and have the wonderful news that the extradition has been dropped. That, that, that's, that's what's needed. I mean, let's not forget that not only is the source of the information that has caused the furor then private Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning, not only has that ex-American soldier been basically pardoned by the US president, but none of the newspaper publishers in Europe or in the United States who also published this controversial information, not one of them has been charged with an offence. You point out that the vote in Parliament 
last week went further than we've seen before, significantly so. Do you see that as a, as a positive sign for Julian Assange? Well, the vote last week in the Australian Parliament was certainly unprecedented. It's been impossible uh, up until now to get uh, the support of the Parliament and I think sent a very powerful signal to uh, to Washington in particular and I suppose to London that, um, you know, let, let's just wind this up. I mean, look, frankly, I think all three countries want the matter brought to an end, but it seems to me that the Biden White House is frozen on this issue and are committed to the justice process running its course. But, you know, I, I don't think that's in anyone's best interest. I mean, let's remember what the substantive matter is, and, and that is that WikiLeaks in 2010 published a lot of material uh, uh, from Iraq, Afghanistan and Guantanamo Bay, which was undeniable proof of US misconduct. Uh, and, in fact, it was interesting that the motion in the parliament last week referred to shocking, a quote, shocking evidence of misconduct by the USA, end of quote. So, you know, I was delighted that the, the government and prime minister endorsed that that sentiment. I mean, that's what this is about. Andrew Wilkie, all the best. Thank you. Good on you. Thanks, David. That's independent MP Andrew Wilkie. As Tasmania's election campaign hits full steam, questions are being asked about two outstanding Integrity Commission probes into elected members of Parliament. There's limited information about who and what is being investigated, and that's not likely to change before polling day on March 23rd. One integrity expert believes Tasmanian voters deserve more information before they cast their ballots. Alexandra Humphreys reports. Tasmania's election campaign has started and the politicians are often racing. A week in, candidates have been shored up and politicians are crisscrossing the state, armed with promises and looking for picture opportunities. Uh, well, great to be here. Welcome to Bushy Park Show. It's fantastic. Rolling and good. Do you want to stand yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay, excellent. There are also questions about two ongoing investigations by Tasmania's Integrity Commission, both looking into MPs in the state's parliament. Most of the details, including the names of the MPs, remain under wraps. Geoffrey Watson is an expert on anti-corruption at the Centre for Public Integrity. The operation of these kinds of bodies, it only works if it's done in public rather than in private. Now, I can understand why people are very careful about protecting the reputation of people and not dragging them into the glare of the public spotlight unnecessarily. But there's a huge difference between that and keeping matters of public interest secret. One investigation concerns allegations of failing to declare and manage conflicts of interest. The other is also pursuing conflict of interest claims, as well as allegations that a grants program improperly used public funds for electoral goals. The Integrity Commission may release its final reports once the investigations are complete, whether they clear those involved or make adverse findings. Mr Watson argues that will come too late for voters. Just imagine for the moment that you've got people who are returning for re-election when they have previously corrupted an election process through misspending public money. They're the sort of people you want out of Parliament, not back in Parliament, and you should be entitled to know the quality of people that you're getting into Parliament. According to Mr Watson, efficiency is crucial for public integrity bodies. Down in Tasmania, they just seem to move at a snail's pace. I, I just cannot understand why an integrity commission 
wouldn't be doing this more efficiently with a view to enhancing integrity. Tasmanian Labor leader Rebecca White is also concerned Integrity Commission investigations aren't being done quickly enough. There are concerns that there could be members who are running for parliament who are subject to investigations by the Integrity Commission, investigations that have been dragging on for quite a long time in the interests of the public and their right to know these matters should be wound up more quickly. Tasmanian Greens leader Rosalie Woodruff is pushing for more funding for the body and urging the major parties to be careful about promising taxpayer-funded grants without proper process. The Greens have long been concerned at the um, un underfunding and lack of teeth of Tasmania's Integrity Commission. Absolutely, um, investigations have to be done uh, with the resourcing that they need so that they can be completed early. Despite the limited public information about the Integrity Commission's work, the state opposition is questioning whether the first investigation, focused on allegations over the management of a conflict of interest, relates to former Sports Minister Jane Howlett, who is hoping to win a seat in the electorate of Lyons. It's been claimed she was in a relationship with the then chief executive of the Jack Jumpers basketball team when it was promised $250,000 in 2021. That promise was not publicly announced at the time. Jane Howlett denies the claims and the government has previously said she wasn't part of any funding negotiations. Liberal leader Jeremy Rockliffe was asked whether Ms Howlett is being investigated. Well, uh, Tasmanians should expect uh, their political parties and the Labor Party uh, to talk about policy and not personalities and personal attacks. In a statement, the Integrity Commission says legislation requires it to conduct its investigations in private. It says that's to protect the integrity of the investigation and the privacy of those who may be involved. It said the Commission must balance confidentiality and privacy against accountability to the public. Alexandra Humphreys reporting there. You're listening to PM with me, David Lipson, coming up a review of last week's Victorian blackout labelled a sham. A regional town in Western Australia recently received the unenviable title of the hottest place in the world, reaching almost 50 degrees on the weekend. Temperatures in the state have been smashing local and national records over the past few days, and as John Daly reports, people and animals alike have been struggling to cope with the intense heat. Poor little guy. He looks like severely dehydrated. Yeah. See how leathery it looks? Not good. Baby black swans are washing up on WA's coastline, either seriously dehydrated or dead. Come on, sweetie, let's take you home. WA's iconic swans belong in freshwater rivers, but volunteers from Western Australian Seabird Rescue say an unusually high number of cygnets are being found out at sea this summer. Well, I think the, we've had a very, very hot summer. I think over here in Perth we've broken a few records for high temperature days. Uh, so it's definitely contributing to the high number of birds we're getting in care that are suffering. They're either displaced juveniles or they're suffering from heat stroke or they're suffering from botulism. Um, these are all things that tie into those high temperatures. That's volunteer Rachel Olson. She says the extreme temperatures and heat waves are drying up these native birds' water sources. Oh, it's really sad. Um, yeah, it's quite devastating when you see the effect of the increased temperature and, and botulism, basically. We, we do the best we can to save as many as we can. 
and to get there quickly enough. But yeah, no, it is quite distressing. State authorities say today they're facing the most dangerous fire conditions in several years, with extreme fire danger covering vast areas of WA. Jessica Lingard is a meteorologist at the Bureau of Meteorology. She says national and local temperature records have been tumbling in the last few days. So we have seen some extreme heat, uh, really, in the last sort of 48 hours, 72 hours, especially peaking over the weekend. Sunday, seeing some incredible temperatures down the west coast, including Carnarvon reaching a record 49.9 degrees on Sunday, smashing their old record by over two degrees and these sorts of numbers not only notable just because how hot they are but also by how much we've beaten the old record by usually when we break temperature records we break them by 0.1 0.2 of a degree but to completely obliterate an old record by two two and a half degrees is certainly notable that blistering 49.9 degrees in Carnarvon was the highest temperature recorded in Australia since temperatures reached 50 degrees in WA's Pilbara region in early 2022. Jessica Lingard says it may also be the highest temperature recorded on the planet that day. Doriana Mangili is the business manager for the area's banana growing cooperative, Sweeter Bananas. Air conditioning is a lifesaver. Um, it's really even too hot to just go to the beach. Um, yeah, lots of people putting water and stuff out for birds and, and those sorts of, you know, um, of the wild animals. But, um, yeah, really just need to um, stay inside and wait for it to pass. And, um, yeah, I don't think a lot of work got done in Carnarvon on Sunday. <laughs> Carnarvon is an important horticultural region for the state and Doriana Mangili says crops have taken a hit. You know, you'll see things like the leaves being burnt off mango trees, um, avocado trees literally shrivel up, they can't deal with that kind of heat. Um, and um, we also, um, with bananas, you get a lot of burnt leaves, you get a lot of um, burnt bunches that are on the external part of the um, tr of the patches, um, so those bunches can't be harvested. So we were thinking it's around about probably a 10% loss in volume immediately. Now, this is being driven by three drying climate patterns. El Nino in the Pacific Ocean, a positive phase in the Indian Ocean Dipole and a positive southern annular mode in the seas south of Australia. Meteorologist Jessica Lingard says these three events have combined to create the record-breaking conditions in Western Australia. So usually if we were to get only one of each of the one of these events, we'd probably do okay and fair, maybe just slightly above average. But when we've had all three of them playing ball together, they have sort of negatively reinforced each other. And we've certainly seen that come to a head in February with these incredible temperatures that we've seen. That's the Bureau of Meteorology's Jessica Lingard ending that story from John Daly. The Victorian government has announced an independent review of the electricity distributor's response to last week's devastating storms. More than 3,000 homes and businesses in the state are still without power, but the opposition is accusing the government of setting up a sham inquiry that won't look at the government's handling of the power outages. Samantha Donovan reports. The catastrophic storms tore through much of Victoria last Tuesday, crumpling transmission towers and snapping huge trees across power lines. More than 2,600 homes and 500 businesses are still without power. The worst affected town appears to be Merbu North, about 160 kilometres southeast of Melbourne. Karen Ellis is the CEO of the South Gippsland Shire Council. Unfortunately, power is still not restored to many houses in Merbu North, so there's 
showers available, clothes washing facilities. We're offering food and a number of community events are offering food events in the park, which is really lovely. Uh, but there's a lot still to be done in terms of clean up and recovery in that community. Lily D'Ambrosio is Victoria's Energy Minister. She's announced an independent review of the management of the electricity system after last week's devastating storms. A panel of experts will look at the preparedness of distribution companies to deal with extreme weather events. She says Victorians have a number of questions. We've heard complaints about a lack of information coming in from those energy infrastructure companies. When they did get information, uh, there was inconsistency on it. We had certainly Osnet's website that crashed within hours of the massive storm event that ripped through the state. And we also, of course, have heard stories of text messages being sent to people with inconsistent information or with broken links. The Victorian opposition leader, John Pesuto, has been calling for a parliamentary inquiry into the state's energy transmission network because of the blackouts. In question time today, he slammed the government's planned probe. The Premier has now caved to pressure and said that the government will conduct its own review. A sham review that has no announced members, no reporting timeline and no capacity to scrutinise the government's role. Bruce Mountain is the director of the Energy Policy Centre at Victoria University. He doesn't think the government's review will go far enough. Clearly, the transmission system is exposed to weather and the energy market operator is seeking to drastically extend the transmission system in a way that I think that risk is going to get worse. Uh, I think the Victorian government now really has to agree to review the transmission system expansion overall. We need to get production as close to the point of load as possible. Imagining that you can build a transmission system to actually resist the weather is not realistic. And uh, we managed to get through it by the skin of our teeth this time but it's getting worse and I think the government cannot turn its back on the high voltage system too. The CEO of the South Gippsland Shire Council, Karen Ellis, has been in Melbourne today asking the government for more help for Merbu North and other spots still without power. She'd like the independent review to look at a number of issues. Firstly, when you when we do have a, a difficult weather day or a, or a difficult event, what can be put in place to ensure that power is restored as quickly as possible, even if it's on a temporary basis through generators initially? And the other real challenge, of course, is that power provision and mobile connectivity are very much intertwined these days. So we'd really love the government to turn its mind to how there might be plans made up front so that mobile connectivity can be a bit more resilient and, and restored more quickly quickly. Um, And then the other thing I think is just supporting communities to build their own resilience and plan for potential future severe weather events or power outages with things like community batteries or um, community generators or other resources that can be shared amongst the community to enable them to have access to that power really quickly in the situation of an emergency. Victorians who've been without power for days are eligible for a prolonged power outage payment from the state government. Samantha Donovan there. Okay, prepare to have your mind blown. A team of Australian scientists has found the fastest growing black hole in the universe and the celestial storm around it is the brightest object ever found. It's consuming the equivalent of our own solar system every day. It was spotted using a telescope near Coonabarabran in regional New South Wales. Here's Rachel Hayter. 
It's the fastest growing black hole in the universe. It's immense gravity dragging in every nearby star and every gas cloud. The unusual thing about it is that it is gobbling up new mass at a very, very high rate, at a higher rate than any other black hole that we've seen before. But Professor Rachel Webster from the University of Melbourne's School of Physics assures us it won't gobble up Earth. No, absolutely not. It's a very, very long way away. In fact, it's three quarters of the way across to the other side of the universe. She's part of a team of mainly Australian scientists who discovered this supermassive black hole with a mass 17 billion times that of our sun. But what exactly is a black hole? It's a place in space, or or we call it space-time, where matter has become so concentrated that not even light can escape from the body, which is why we call it black, of course. So if you, for example, if you took the sun and you, you know, collapsed it down into a a volume that had a radius of about a few kilometres, then it would be a black hole. Once that matter is sucked in, it never returns. This particular black hole was spotted through a telescope near Coonabarabran in regional New South Wales. It looks just like a dot, and everything we now know about this hole was learned by analysing the light around it. Australian National University astrophysicist, Associate Professor Christian Wolfe led the research. This black hole eats as much matter every single day as there is in our entire solar system, the sun and all the planets combined. And the giant celestial storm cells surrounding this black hole, which is seven light years across, is now the most luminous known object in our universe. About 500 trillion times the amount of light that our sun emits, or about 20,000 times the amount of light that our entire Milky Way galaxy with all its billions of stars emits. The discovery has left even Nobel laureate astrophysicist Brian Schmidt in awe. Just the fact that the thing exists at all, it is not something I would have actually thought would have been in the universe. And Professor Rachel Webster explains it could help us understand the origins of life on Earth. Finding these extreme objects helps us piece together the processes in the very early universe that might have been responsible for some of the critical things that we see today. The record-breaking black hole has a name. It's not terribly memorable, but it maps its place in the universe. J0529-4351. <laughs> Easy to remember. Rachel Hayter reporting there. That's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Imagine what could happen to the cost of your groceries if the big supermarkets were in a price war to win your business. With Coles and Woolies dominating the market, it's not going to happen. Why? Because they want to keep their profits as high as possible. Today for Corners reporter Angus Grigg on his investigation into the tactics of the two big players. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.